Yeah. So grief and love are synonymous one, with one another. They, they are two sides of one coin. If you love someone, you're going to grieve them forever. The, the nature of the grief, the intensity of the grief, what it looks like changes over time. Marhaba, Anna Karen Abu Jaude. Anna Sara Raslan. O Anna Mais Amran. Welcome to Al Amuma. Real talk, guys. We'll be taking you through all the stages of pregnancy and motherhood and diving into the stuff no one talks about. From fears and anxieties, sex drive to social stigmas, we will be sharing our personal experiences with you. And of course, welcome various special guests to share their journeys and learnings too. And most importantly, hear from you, mamas. This is your podcast. Make sure to follow us on Instagram where we'll be taking all your awesome questions. Don't shy away, mamas, or even papas. All sorts of questions are welcome. Just remember, folks, we are not medical professionals. We are mamas sharing our experiences with you. All thoughts and opinions expressed are our own. Welcome back, Al Umuma family. We have a wonderful episode planned for you today, and this was actually a special request by our listeners, and we're so honored to welcome a wonderful clinical psychologist to take us through what we're going to talk about in this episode. In today's episode, we're going to be talking about a subject that's super important and not talked about enough, and there is not enough awareness or information um, generally in the wider community about how common it is. Early pregnancy loss is common, affecting up to 25% of pregnancies. Typically, women who have early pregnancy loss do not receive any specific medical or psychological follow-up. And this is why we are so excited to welcome Dr. Ottilia Brown from Lighthouse Arabia to discuss pregnancy loss, the support that is required, and to take us through the psychological steps that mama goes through and the experiences mama goes through. Dr. Otilia, thank you and welcome to Al Umuma. Please, would you introduce yourself to our listeners? Uh, thank you so much for that very warm welcome, Karen and Sarah. Um, I'm Otilia, Dr. Otilia Brown, clinical psychologist, originally trained in South Africa. I've worked in Dubai just over three years now. And before moving here, I had the privilege of working at a medical facility in South Africa where I walked um, women through, uh, amongst doing many other things, um, dealing with interuterine death and also dealing with infant loss. So when I moved to Dubai, I uh, a year after being here, was given the opportunity to run the Little Lifetimes group which is a free grief support group at the Lighthouse Arabia. And this group focuses on women who have experienced pregnancy loss and infant loss. And um, that's for children up to the age of one. So this is very close to my heart, given my previous work in South Africa and also the opportunity I've had to run the support group in Dubai. Amazing. Um, studies looking at the emotional consequences of pregnancy loss have shown that most women do well to a certain degree. However, some women do experience those clinical, clinically significant symptoms such as anxiety and depression. 
could you talk us through a little bit more about the the symptoms that a, a mother might be going through when after she has experienced pregnancy loss? Yes, Sarah. Um, it's really important to remember that when there's a loss, there's grief. The, and, and this is the same with pregnancy loss. There's often a misperception that because there wasn't a child that was met, that the person just gets over it and moves on. And that's often also the expectation of society. So there is a grief response. So typical grief responses include the body, the behavior, the emotions, and even the spiritual life of the mother. So they might experience physical symptoms like headaches, um, body aches, tingling sensations, heavy limbs. They might experience things like crying excessively, sleep disturbance, appetite disturbance, feeling a loss of concentration, difficulties with remembering things, feeling sad a lot of the time. They might feel quite lethargic, fatigued, not really up to socializing, or in some cases going the other extreme, socializing excessively, just depending on the personality beforehand. And some might feel quite intense emotions like anger, sadness, shame, guilt, frustration, irritability, all at the same time. And that's the thing about a grief response. It is quite a comprehensive response. The whole being responds to it. So those are the typical, and I mean, that's not an exhaustive list by any means. That's a typical response. And yes, in some mothers, you may see symptoms of anxiety, you may see symptoms of depression, and this is also largely dependent on whether there's a, you know, a pre-existing history of mental health issues or, you know, the level of support that the mother is receiving after the loss. Is there a link between the gestational length or the length of the pregnancy and the time of time it takes to grieve or experience grief? There isn't. I think that's the short answer. There isn't a uh, an association or a correlation between the gestational length and the grief length. Um, and again, this is a misperception in society and people will say things like, oh, at least it was early on, you know, you can try again, these, these insensitive statements, uh, which really lead the mom to feeling invalidated because regardless of the length, the grief response is there. And in the support group I run, there are women at various stages of pregnancy that have experienced loss. And I've not experienced any difference in how their grief presents in terms of intensity. Obviously, the symptoms are different. The individual grief is like a, like a, a fingerprint. It's very individual. But no, there, there isn't a correlation. And research will also show that. Sorry, um, since we're on the subject of grief, actually, Um, especially when it comes to pregnancy loss, I remember overhearing a conversation that kind of, uh, it disturbed me almost because it, there were a few women talking about experiencing pregnancy loss, but comparing who suffered the most in terms of their grief. And I'm not sure if it's a cultural thing or a societal thing, but, or, or what happens in motherhood, um, But I thought that was super strange that, you know, I, I, I lost my baby at 20 weeks um, and I suffered the most. I felt it kick. But then someone else who suffered um, the loss at, I think, eight weeks felt that she 
you know, went through a depression. So that makes her grief worse. And in the um, sessions that you have with clients, do you find that this is common or was it just something that I overheard and <laughs> that's it? I mean, I thought it was interesting. I have not experienced that in my practice um, thus far. I think in the group that I run, the women are so empathetic and so supportive of one another and so open to listening to wherever that person is at, regardless, again, of whether it was 20 weeks or eight weeks or whatever it may have been. And what is quite possible, uh, what could have happened there, Karen, is that societal conditioning around, oh, if it was 20 weeks, then you will suffer more. And if it was only eight weeks, and I use quotation marks there, you know, then it's not as big a deal. And th that is very much um, a societal kind of uh, picture about how people respond to pregnancy loss. And it's so inaccurate, which adds to the challenges that um, grieving mothers experience because of pregnancy loss, because the response is so different to when you lose a parent or a sibling or a friend or even a pet. Um, mm. The response is very different. And the, the women often report that they find it quite strange that the response is so different when it's a pregnancy loss, especially when it's early pregnancy loss. From a cultural standpoint in the region, we tend to not publicly announce the pregnancy until after the three-month period. I believe that's, you know, because of in case there is a preg early pregnancy loss that, um, you know, it doesn't become publicly or widely known um, that, you know, mama was pregnant and lost a baby. I, I don't know if you have any thought. I, I don't know how I feel about that because it's, it's quite confusing. Um, you know, when do we tell people uh, why are we telling people? And then what's this, what's this taboo around um, if we do have a pregnancy loss? Why is it taboo? I think that comes from, you know, just decades and centuries of women not talking about pregnancy loss. It not being normalized, it not being seen as a legitimate loss. I use that word very liberally now, legitimate. But there is just this underlying shame around pregnancy loss. Like I've done something wrong or I've caused this or my body rejected my baby or my, or the fetus. And, and I've never heard a mother refer to it as the fetus. So sometimes that, that term is also used when people relate to the mother who has had the pregnancy loss and they find that very difficult to hear. So, so there's also that shame that goes along with it for some women. And traditionally, it was just not spoken about at all. And I think it takes a long time to reset these deeply ingrained patterns. You know, I'm from South Africa and we do the same thing. People don't say anything for the first 12 weeks. And if they tell you, you sworn to secrecy and all of these things. So it's, <laughs> you know, so, so it, it's, it's very much a personal, um, you know, decision when you want to tell people. But then, of course, when, if there is a loss in those first 12 weeks, the mom struggles to share then because no one knew. Then there's the struggle to say, actually, I was pregnant, but I had this miscarriage. I had this loss. 
Um, so then the mother then is quite isolated and grief, this type of grief especially, but grief in general can be quite isolating. And, and we really want to guard against that isolation. And we don't want to um, allow the shame to take hold. You know, actually, I was um, thinking about what you're saying in the fact that the grief becomes uh, such a lonely experience, a very isolated experience. Um, and then I feel from several friends who have experienced or talked to me about this subject, because no one knew that they were pregnant and that they experienced a pregnancy loss, it makes them feel safer in trying for future pregnancies because no one knew that I'm experiencing this. No one knows that I'm trying. So I can sort of keep it to myself. I can grieve to myself, but I can also keep trying without worrying, you know, what other people think or, you know, outside pressure of, are you trying again? How do you feel? Is it working? How long have you been trying for? So pregnancy loss can affect how a woman feels about potentially trying again. And it also impacts her mental health in that next pregnancy when you do get pregnant again. So could you talk to us a little bit about, you know, the journey, the mental health journey that happens in that next stage? So with, with you know, with the, the many women I've worked with, there's a lot of anxiety around trying again. And the pregnancy is usually quite challenging from a mental health point of view. Because I often hear women say things like, I don't want to get too excited because when I lost that pregnancy, it was so crushing, excruciatingly painful. So I don't want to set myself up again and get too excited or, you know, um, have too much joy about this because what if it happens again? I'll be crushed again. Um, and then there's just this, you know, every time they go for scans, every time they have a doctor's appointment, there's just that little bit of anxiety. For some, it's a lot of anxiety. For some, it's a little bit of anxiety. But it's there now because they know something can go wrong. Um, and, and I think that's the thing with pregnancy loss is it shows the woman that something can go wrong. Especially for, I mean, I have a really close friend of mine who has gone through multiple pregnancy losses, multiple. And it's so difficult. And I, every time I speak to her, I actually am speechless. I don't even know what to say or how to be supportive. Um, if there's even anything to say, uh, um, I, I could only imagine that that anxiety just gets compounded with every single with with each pregnancy loss. It's just, I think she's reached a point now where she's where she's almost given up, where she 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 emotionally and mentally, psychologically cannot put herself through those emotions anymore. Yes, that's very possible with multiple pregnancy losses, where women get to a place where they take a break or they just stop because it's just so emotionally intense, that journey. And again, of course, the partner's involved and there, but their body is affected directly. And the thing with pregnancy loss is you still remember the loss after the loss because your body is still doing certain things after the loss. Yeah. So you have this reminder all the time that, 
I lost my baby. I lost my baby. It's this daily kind of the body is, you know, not giving you a break from constantly reminding you that this happened because the body doesn't just carry on like nothing happened. There's a period there afterwards. As we said, early stage pregnancy, there's still bleeding. There's still the body goes back to pre-pregnancy and that's a process. So that body reminder, that physical reminder makes it such a unique loss to any other kind of loss that one experiences. Not worse, not different, just different, just unique. Because the mother is now dealing with that in addition to the actual loss. Yeah, the mother is grieving in in, in a very physical, personal way. Yes. Actually, I um, I wanted to ask you something. So I I remember a family member of mine um, experiencing a pregnancy loss as well, but not feeling that grief or not feeling anxiety about the next pregnancy. It was she very much detached from this event, and she, other people were making her feel bad about not feeling bad. Um, and I just want to understand from, because I'm sure that this happens uh, to other women. I know a few other women that are like, either they're just trying to be brave, but some say that, you know, I didn't feel connected. I am not, you know, I'm not grieving. I'm okay. I'm ready to try again. You know, the baby wasn't, you know, the baby wasn't fit to to survive. I'm glad that my body is able to do this. So they actually see some positives here, but Can you explain the difference, maybe from a psychological point of view, why are some people able to detach a bit more from that experience versus people who need to grieve or experience grief? So again, that you know that response to loss is very unique. Mm -hmm. The woman you are referring to might have a belief system that supports her detaching from the loss in that way. And, and that belief system could be religious, spiritual. It could be the way she views how the body works and have beliefs around how the body works and the body dispelling that which is not viable and the body actually helping her, you know, procreate in a way that brings forth of offspring that is healthy. Um, so the other thing, of course, is, is there a history of detaching from crises, traumatic events, difficult events. Is this how the person operates as a human being? Something difficult happens and they they use this detachment mechanism. Um, so that's also a possibility that may may be the case, that this is just how they deal with difficult things. They, they, they dissociate from things. They just distance themselves very, very quickly from things and don't allow the emotions to come up at all. Is that, is that okay or are there risks of latent symptoms um, coming up in the future? Yeah. So so for people that typically dissociate from uh, painful events, that's usually not good over a period of time because those emotions then are just stored in the body and they wait for an opportunity to present themselves when something else comes along. So something completely unrelated may come along and then there's this incredibly exaggerated emotional response which makes no sense to the person or the people around them but it's because there hasn't been a processing of difficult material along the way right but yes for some women there is a uh, uh, there isn't a, a grief response or there's a very um, quick grief response and then they move into the next 
phase. Actually, what you're saying is super interesting because you're saying if they're used to detaching and then there could be an incident that triggers all these emotions to come out, one of those things can be childbirth. If you as in your life have experienced trauma, and I, I will tell you, I am one of those people. I had a, I experienced something as a child that caused me to dissociate from my physical body. So I would constantly remove myself emotionally from feeling any kind of pain. Um, and it was very easy for me to, um, to dissociate and to distance and to, to not care, essentially. But then when I had my child, I went through extreme postpartum anxiety, which was, in, in my situation, directly linked to my childhood trauma. But it was childbirth that, you know, that insane experience that triggered my emotions to surface again. So I think what you're saying here is fascinating. It's, you know, you're really getting a glimpse into how people function on a deep emotional subconscious level. And you're talking about these belief systems that we built. I mean, this is a normal part of building who we are. We do this to keep ourselves safe, essentially. But it should nef definitely not go untreated. Like in my case, I mean, the anxiety or, you know, you can even lead to postpartum depression and childbirth can be one of those experiences. Fascinating, really. And, and just to, to add to that, in some cases where women don't grieve and they, they need to grieve, I'm talking about women that need to grieve, where they just don't grieve, um, I've seen many times years later, suddenly there's panic disorder, suddenly there's anxiety issues, suddenly there's depression. And they're confused because there's nothing in that moment that can explain why they have these intense psychological presentations. And when you go back, it's like, oh, I never grieved. I just tried to move on, look on the bright side. Or my family said, you know, it's okay. This is God's will. Let's just move on. Or, and, and then later there's this, oh my goodness, here it is in a completely unrelated way. It just shows up. You know, it's it, it like, it forces you. It's like, you will, you will do the work. You will, you will face me now. You, you must heal. <laughs> so, so Karen, what you described was probably that happening. You must heal. You must face this now. Yeah. And it was, it was really difficult. I mean, I, I, I could go on and on about this, but um, it's, it's really difficult to bottle all your experience. It's like every experience I ever distanced myself from, didn't grieve, didn't process, didn't face emotionally decided to come up and the anxiety was like here you go here you go deal with this deal with that oh you think you can do this no you can do that and I was like oh, I can't do this anymore <laughs> help me <laughs> but yeah definitely this is something that people need to process and I think I think it's becoming um, more acceptable more normal and uh, advisable people want to help themselves and I hope that I hope that we continue to do that, especially with an experience like pregnancy loss. Yes, absolutely. Talking about the the need to um, somehow deal with the emotions or the grief of pregnancy loss, let's let's talk a little bit about you know. There's the assumption that pregnancy loss is occurring for women who don't have any children, but the reality is. 
and I know a lot of, you know, uh, people from my mom's generation, so my aunts and, and older women who now admit having had a pregnancy loss and their second or third pregnancies after already having children um, or having a successful pregnancy after having gone through a pregnancy loss. And what are the, what are the possible risks associated to the, to the child that did survive um, after, having, after having gone through a pregnancy loss? Um, so, so there was a study that I looked into or that I came across um, that found that 45% of the infants um, that were born after the mother had gone through a pregnancy loss that didn't go through the proper grieving or healing um, did eventually have some form of disorganized attachment to their mothers. Um, so let's let's talk a little bit about that. Um, I, I think it's super important for for everyone, not just the moms um, who may be experiencing pregnancy loss or or having to grieve, um, but their entire support network. How important it is for the the child that does survive um, to have mothers kind of taking care and healing, as we just said. Yes. Of course, if mom is going through a difficult emotional period from the pregnancy loss, she's experiencing grief or she's working hard at not experiencing her grief so that she thinks she can be there for her child or children, that will come through in the parenting. When there isn't an attention paid to the emotional responses that are coming up, as I said in the beginning, your body responds, your mind responds, you respond emotionally, you respond spiritually, your entire being responds. And that response will be felt by the whole family, including the children that are there or the child that is there. And it's so important then for mom to get the right support, to be able to process those emotions, to make sure that she's doing the grief work. We call it grief work because it is work and it is exhausting. Um, and then, of course, the other end of the, uh, the, 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 the other extreme is that if she's not doing the grief work at all and she's just like, no, no, I, I have to focus on my kids. I can't, I don't have time for that. I, these kids need me. The, the repression of those emotions and those responses, again, are not going to be good because they're going to come out in other ways, shapes and forms. So it could come out in anxiety. It could come out in irritability. It, she could start saying, I'm not myself. I don't know why, but I'm just not myself. And of course, the children that are there will experience that she's not herself. What, what does that mean for, so when we say like in this study that 45% of children who are born um, from mothers who have experienced pregnancy loss go on to possibly have disorganized attachment, what does that mean? What, why does that happen? And what does that actually mean in terms of the relationship? We're aiming for secure attachment. So what is secure attachment? A child knows that their needs are going to be met. Their environment is consistent and predictable. And their needs are consistently responded to. And they know that their caregiver is going to, if they cry, they're going to get a response. If they're hungry, they're going to get a response. If they hurt, they're going to get a response, etc. And because that is consistently enacted, not perfectly enacted, consistently enacted, that child develops a secure attachment. So they start trusting the world 
and they trust that they will be able to deal with the world because they have the secure attachment. So, of course, if mom is going through a difficult emotional time, she is not going to be able to do things consistently. And that's okay, because as I said, not perfectly. No mother is going to be 100% consistent. It, yeah. it doesn't exist. You yeah. do your best, you try your best, you bring your best self every day. But it's really difficult when the grief is not being attended to. Because then that inconsistency grows oh, and that the period gets longer because mom is struggling for air and struggling to stay afloat with all these emotions that are going on. So now there's inconsistency with the child's needs being met. You know, I'm thinking about these experiences and um, sometimes women are lucky enough to have a partner to make up for the moments where we can't show up for our kids. But I think thinking about men in general in this whole experience, I feel like they're, they also have a grieving process and they are, I don't want to say disregarded, but they aren't accounted for as, as individuals in this experience that also need care and mental health care. So can you tell us based on what you've seen in your support groups, what you've seen with your patients, how or how men are not uh, taken into account here? So there's a couple of things that come up there. The first thing is that often men feel like they don't have the right to grieve because it didn't happen to their bodies and that they should now be the strong one. They should be the, you know, the partner shouldering their wife or making sure that she's okay. And they don't allow themselves to access their grief. And they don't think they have the right to their grief. So that, that's one thing that sometimes I see. The other thing I sometimes see with men is they just jump very quickly straight back into work because they don't get maybe the same amount of time off work as the mom does. And they just go back into work and they get back on that, that treadmill and they just numb with work. And that can leave the mom feeling quite isolated because now why are we not talking about this? Why are you not grieving with me? Why are you not feeling the sadness with me? I need to talk about it. You're not talking about it. So, so there can also be that disconnect that happens. So it's really, really important. Yes, the experience is different for men because they have not physically carried the child, but there is still a grief response for many men. And it's very important for them to acknowledge that grief, process that grief. And it would be really wonderful the day that society goes to the dad as well. I'm so sorry for your loss. I'm also checking in on you. How are you doing? There was actually um, a publication in Psychotherapy Theory Research Practice Training in 2010. I know that sounds very long, but that's the publication that studied men whose partners experienced the loss of a baby. And they actually found that the father's sadness and grief was largely, massively dismissed by others. So because we're talking about the importance of fathers grieving as well, in the support groups that you run, is are fathers invited to some? Do you hold support groups for fathers or do you do private sessions? How How is it more commonly um, healed in men? 
so men are, can come to the support group that's they invited. They, they again, um, they work long hours. They often don't come. I have had, um, yeah, I have had men come actually, but they don't come consistently or follow up because of the fact that they work at the time that we have the support group. So what they typically do is branch out into individual therapy if they feel the need to do that. And we really emphasize that that's an option. The other thing we also do at the Lighthouse Arabia is we offer one free of cost grief consultation. So that's a one-on-one session. So it's either just with the father or just with the mother or the couple sometimes want to come together. And I find it very useful when the couple comes together uh, because it's an opportunity for them to talk about their grief and for us to offer them grief education, to normalize their grief responses, to give them some ideas about the grief process. Now, the grief process is messy, non-linear, and unpredictable. So, so there's no little recipe that, that's given, but it's, it's a warning and it's a caution around the things they can expect and just normalizing those things for them. And of course, we do encourage them to talk to one another and we let them know that individual therapy is always there as an option and the group is there as an option as well. Does, um, do the stages of grief still apply for pregnancy loss or is it a little bit different? We do not use the stages of grief at all because the stages of grief were actually developed for people that were dying from an illness. It was adjusted or extrapolated into the use for grief, right? So at, we, here at the Lighthouse, we do not use that model at all. We use the, the, the four tasks of grief, uh, which was developed by psychologist Warden. And we usually don't even talk about the five stages of grief with people at all. We find that with the five stages of grief, people get frustrated because they feel like they should be here and they should be there. Yeah. But why are they there and why aren't they here? And, you know, and, and acceptance, which is the last stage, feels like it's never going to come. And mm-hmm. the reality with grief is it's forever. We love forever. So yes. when we lose someone we love. We don't suddenly just stop loving them. Yes. So grief and love are synonymous one, with one another. They, they are two sides of one coin. If you love someone, you're going to grieve them forever. The, the nature of the grief, the intensity of the grief, what it looks like changes over time. It becomes a healthier form and less of a sadness. It, it might still, you might still have stages of sadness. So think of grief as waves. You might have days, months, years of still ocean, and then suddenly you smell a flower, you see a movie you once saw with that person, you hear a song you listened to when you found out you were pregnant, you, whatever it might be, trigger, wave. And then the wave knocks you all of a sudden, you're like, where did that come from? So, so that's grief. It, it, initially the waves are, they just, it's almost like it's difficult to come up for air. You feel like you're drowning. And after a while, and when I say a while, there's no time period. I can't say after two years, after one year, after, because it's so unique and individual per person. So after a while, the, the waves become less frequent and they may even become smaller. Initially, they like tsunamis and later they're just a little bit smaller. And then suddenly out of the blue, you know, it's it's your daughter's wedding day or it's it's something and then suddenly there's this big wave again it's it's really it's really an ongoing process that just shifts form as we go through life as we move through life 
That's a wonderful metaphor. It actually really helps me visualize an experience. So thank you for that. That's beautiful. Um, it's, uh, yeah, I, I have a few friends who have gone through grief and, and they have also used that analogy of the wave, um, that it comes in waves. Um, speaking of, of, uh, support systems, and I just want to go back, um, you mentioned earlier, um, insensitive statements that people may say to someone that, um, has gone through pregnancy loss or, even insensitive statements, and they might not even be aware that they're insensitive because they have no idea that, you know, this couple is trying and um, going through pregnancy loss. Can you give us some examples of, of those statements just to like put them out there? What are the, what are those statements not to say? So I get you very right. Some people say they're meaning well or wanting to make help the person feel better. And some of them are just really outright, this person has not thought about this before it came out of their mouth. So things like, at least it happened early on for early pregnancy loss. Yeah. <laughs> I've heard people say that a lot. I've also heard, um, you know, clients share with me things like when it's a later pregnancy loss, well, at least you didn't lose them when they were 18 or an adult, you know, these kinds of things. They weren't here yet, so at least, the, anything that starts with at least, delete. Yeah. Do not say anything that starts with at least. Another one is, don't worry, you can try again. Um, and another one for younger moms is, don't worry, you're still young, you can have many children. So, so those, are, those are a few of, of some of the, you know, really, really insensitive things that come on. Uh, 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 some other things that people will say is, you know, you, you really need to get over this now. It's been so long or so long or so long, six months or three months or one year, or you should get over this now. You know, or what's wrong with you? Why are you not over this yet? So, so this imposition of your pain is uncomfortable for me. So can you move along now so that I don't feel uncomfortable around you anymore? You know, when, when you're saying this, um, I think back to, I think back to a lot of the parenting books that I read. I think back to the book called The Whole Brain Child, which is all about, you know, connecting to specific parts of the brain. And what you're saying when people say, at least it didn't happen here or at, you know, X, Y, Z. I think as adults, we've become programmed to try and problem solve a situation, but we're not actually showing up for our friend or wife or sister or whoever it is. I think the language that I'm thinking of and the language that was used to help me through my anxiety was, that seems really hard. Are you okay? It's the emotion part of the brain. It's the emotion that you want to, you just want to feel like you can connect to someone. And that's what I needed in, you know, my healing journey is that seems really tough. Or if you are trying to problem solve, the one thing that I, that made me feel okay was you are not alone. And I was like, well, I'm not, are you sure? <laughs> but but yeah, we're constantly trying to problem solve as adults and this is not what is needed in this situation. You know, I think some of the common grief statements that are said with all kinds of loss, like it was God's will or they're better off now or spared something or other, all of those are also said in pregnancy loss. Mothers and fathers do not respond well to those statements. 
Um, and the, the, the examples you've mentioned is about, I'm here to witness the, the, the only thing we can do with grief. The problem with grief for humanity is you can't fix it. It's not a fixable thing. It's not something you can problem solve. It's something you have to do. You can't skip through, you can't fast forward. There's no shortcut. You have to do the work. The only way is through the grief. So we struggle with that as human beings because we're in this fix-it society and there is a fix-it for everything. There's an app for everything. It's Everything's fixable. This is not fixable. The best thing you can do for someone is like what you've experienced, witnessing. I loved when, you know, I heard that from my mom. Um, my mom told me, she just said, that must be really difficult. You're not alone. And that triggered me to like waterworks. And it felt good to not feel alone, to be supported, to have someone to just listen to this nonsense, you know, what's quote unquote nonsense in my brain, but is actually valid feelings. But um, while we're on this subject, people are looking for help. People want to heal. People want to grieve in a healthy way. Can you talk to us a little bit about some um, uh, real practices that you do in your sessions, in your support groups that help people in accomplishing, or I don't want to say accomplishing, that help people in processing this experience, processing this pregnancy loss and grieving it in a healthy way? It's really, really important for people to feel their feelings. And grief is very uncomfortable because it's a blanket term for sadness, guilt, shame, anger, irritability, frustration. It's so, there's so many things that come up when you're grieving. And sometimes you can't even name the feeling because it's just such a mix of stuff that sits and comes up. So it's really important that people make time to feel their feelings, to Process those feelings, that can include various things. Talking to someone they trust, talking to a therapist, joining a group, writing in a journal. Some people don't want to talk to someone, they just want to not talk. And that's okay, write in a journal, um, finding healthy things to do for the self, whether that's going for walks, whether that's meditating, if, if the person's religious, maybe they want to do some prayers, um, Anything that is a healthy outlet for that emotion, if the person's feeling intense anger, which is a very common part of the grief process, expressing that anger appropriately so that it doesn't, you know, spill over into their relationships with their partners or other children or at work. So expressing anger can take many various forms. You can have a silent tantrum. You can punch your pillow. You can scream into a pillow. It's all healthy stuff. Just as long as you're doing things that don't harm yourself, go and take a boxing class, do an angry walk. And the mo I think the most important thing is just sitting with, feeling the feelings, and then finding healthy outlets for the feelings. You know, it could be crying for some people. Some people don't cry, and that's okay. That's something I hear often. I'm, I'm not crying, so is, th is there something wrong with me? No, everyone, everyone does it differently. So for some people, that could be crying. For other people, it could be writing, journaling, poetry. It's really, it really depends on the individual and how we can find ways for them to express their emotions 
in a healthy way. But the, we start with the allowing a space for the emotions, sitting with them. The breath is a very helpful thing to use when we're sitting with our emotions, slow, gentle, deep breaths, and then a healthy expression of those emotions. And then other things people can do, um, which that which are helpful for some, is finding ways to honor the loss, whether it's lighting a candle on the anniversary, whether it's lighting a candle every day, um, whether it's having a special tree planted in the garden, whatever it might be for that person that's symbolic in some kind of way or ritualistic in some kind of way, some people, not all, some people really benefit from doing something like that. Oh, that's wonderful. So in your sessions with your clients or with your patients, um, do you use uh, therapies such as cognitive restructuring or behavioral activation? Um, yes, th those strategies belong to a group of, ther a group of therapies called cognitive behavioral therapy. Um, so behavioral activation is generally <clears throat> for people that are struggling to activate themselves in the day. They're really feeling very fatigued, very heavy, um, you know, struggling to even do basic things and get through the day. So that's when we use behavioral activation generally. And again, it depends on the person because some of that not being able to do anything is healthy. It, it makes the person sit with their grief, right? And, and I think that's the important thing about the, the symptoms that come from grief. A lot of it looks like psychopathology or psychological illness, but it's not. It's just a grief response. I know that Sara and I talk a lot about cognitive behavioral therapy outside of our podcast recordings. Um, Sara is studying psychology and I have a background in childhood development. So, Actually, the CBT approach to go back and process what and when and how things happened is very powerful. And it's, it's a wonderful thing. What a wonderful way to close, Dr. Otelia, by giving us uh, practical advice on how someone can heal. And if you are experiencing a pregnancy loss, please don't hesitate to get some help, to find support, and also to reach out to us if you need us to connect you with anyone. Dr. Otelia, thank you so much for your time. We really, really, really appreciate everything you've said and done. Can I just say one thing about the cognitive behavioral therapies that are Absolutely, there? yes. <laughs> so I just wanted to say cognitive behavioral therapy is a widely used tool and it's very powerful, but it's something we don't use exclusively in grief. You know, sometimes we use a lot of other different things and it's just thrown in there along with a number of different strategies. Again, it just depends on who's coming in, where they're at, and what they need in the moment. Sometimes jumping to something like cognitive restructuring too early is not helpful for the process. And rather encouraging and facilitating experiencing the emotions is where we need to go first. So it again, it just depends where the person's at in their grief process, honoring where they're at in their grief process and literally walking alongside them. As you said, grief is, is like a fingerprint. So every person goes through it in their own unique way. And we shouldn't um, kind of have any expectations of when or how someone handles that grief. Someone famous said that, Sarah, but I can't remember who it was. 
Okay. Someone famous said that, guys. <laughs> it sounded so beautiful coming from Sarah. It's not mine. It's not mine. <laughs> from Dr. Otilia. Dr. Otilia, thank you so much. What a pleasure. Thank you for joining us. Thank you so much, Dr. You're both so welcome. So, so welcome. Take care. Ma'asalama. Ma'asalama.